everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Jen Ashman from EPOM Continuum. Today, we're talking about call centers and cops, the sociology of the obvious, Detroit liquor stores and target shooting, and what it takes to be a professional noticer. Gary David, sociology professor at Bentley University, gives our Toby Botorf a report from the customer experience beat. We didn't put a wire on Gary and Toby, but this does feel like our most streetwise episode of The Resonance Test yet. When David, as a consultant, walks into a client workplace, he's looking everywhere for clues to building a better customer experience. And this often means redesigning the employee experience. To quote David, sometimes the greatest value for an organization is in identifying the things that are implied but not explicit. Most companies think of CX in terms of how customers perceive their interactions with a company. David's less interested in the perception part and more interested in the interactions themselves where truth meets obviousness. Tying up NPS scores is one thing, but David says by looking at the interactions, we can see what is actually going on in the encounter. Hit the play button. Let's find out what actually went on in the episode. We're talking today about great experiences, how we design them, how we measure them. I'm talking with Gary David, who is a professor of sociology at Bentley University and an ethnographer, which uh, to simplify probably just means a professional noticer. That's a lot of it. Hi, Gary. Walk around looking at things. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. So one of the things that you have the aptitude or developed skill at is is noticing things that other people don't notice. Um, we were talking earlier about uh, the sociology of the obvious. Um, what does it mean to see things other people don't see? It means that growing up, I didn't have a lot of friends, Toby. <laughs> and if you want to go in that direction, I'm happy to, although we might be here for a while. I do think there's some element of aptitude that, especially in the kind of ethnography I'm trained in, people who tend to be good at it are ones who always had a different way of looking at the world. And some of that might be through training, but a lot of it, I think, is just through their own experiences of maybe not fitting in. We're professional outsiders, in a manner of speaking. You can sit on the periphery and see how things are happening because you might not be naturally good at it, right? And that can be taught for sure. And this is part of what I do when I teach my course on ethnography for experience design. But at the same time, if there is this aptitude, you just see the world through different eyes and through a different lens. And then the next step is obviously, what do you do with that ability? And how do you use that to inform making better design decisions for whoever you're working with? That's often what we get uh, engaged by clients to do, um, to compensate for uh, some of the tunnel vision or blindness that comes with deep, deep expertise. Right. Um, we see things with uh, an outsider's eye, like you're describing, or approach what to do with that data with a beginner's mind. Right. It's a super valuable complementary perspective. Um, one of the things that that sometimes results in, though, is um, insights that seem obvious once we bring them up but nobody noticed before. Right, right. I mean, one of the stories that I heard, the guy who founded the kind of sociology that I do, a person by the name of Harold Garfinkel, would tell his students, when the students would come back from the field and they're all excited and they've done this research and they found something, they say, here's this amazing thing I found. And Garfinkel would say, that's great. Now go find me the mundane thing, right? That if you think you found the thing that's storyable, that's not really the everyday lived experiences that people had because they don't tell stories about those things. So if you think you have a finding that's obvious in terms of everyone's talking about it or it's a disruptive feature of the setting, there's a lot more going on that you need to go back to and look for. Not that that disruptive element isn't important or valuable, but you really want to understand the nature of how things happen in a naturally occurring way 
and then elevate the awareness of people in that setting over things they already know how to do. So when we, when we do that, oftentimes we will come up with ideas or identify insights that um, our clients might say, well, now that you mentioned it, right. that seems super obvious. Right. And, and we sometimes have to defend the credibility of those kinds of insights. Right. Um, I, I tend to say something that's, that's um, obvious but brand new is a, is a really compelling proposition. I like that. And it's a lot more generous than when I say, well, how come you didn't see it then? I mean, if it's so obvious, then how come I'm telling it to you and I don't see it anywhere in your processes or your design or the way your customer experience are developed or your employee experiences are developed? I like your way. It's much more tactful. You're much better at this than I am. (laughs) So I think that, you know, going to and saying, you're right, it is obvious, but sometimes the greatest value for an organization is in identifying the things that are implied but not explicit. And it also can be more easily translated with lower cost and higher return because it's already embedded in the context and the organization and the way people do things. And as a result, you're not introducing a new thing that they have to learn. You're making them more aware of what they already do. And you're also making management aware of it so they don't screw it up. If they're implementing a new technological system or they have some idea that they read in Harvard Business Review, no offense, Harvard, you know, to make them go and think, well, we're going to have an impact if we do this and what are we going to lose in real terms over some abstracted notion of gains from somewhere else. Yeah. So impact is, is what we're all about. We're not just looking for uh, evidence, things that are interesting. Uh, we're looking for things that are actionable and right. can be turned into uh, new ideas. And, you know, an obvious but new idea we feel has a ton of potential. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems, I think it's easy to boost the credibility of something that people might uh, belittle because it's obvious. There's, there's other credibility problems um, in this space that we both operate in of quantitative uh, or qualitative, I mean, right. uh, evidence gathering. Right. I, I distinguish between uh, evidence, which is what we're in the business of, and data, huh. which people treat as precise. Yeah, I like that. And I, I talk in similar terms about data plus context equals information. That's, so context is often missing, right? And people right. talk about data being um, processed into information Talk about how how context plays a part in that. So one of the fundamental features that we talk about, which is another sociology of the obvious, is crime statistics. And I tell my college students that, you know, there's no no evidence of drug arrests on a college campus, so therefore there must be no drugs. (laughs) And they laugh or they fidget uncomfortably in their desk, which means that they are probably the chief offenders. And so why are there no drug arrests? I mean, if I'm a drug police officer, the place I want to go to where I think drugs are probably going to be used is any college campus. Yet there's no drug arrests there. Why? Not because there's no drugs, but because police don't patrol there. So crime stats are really products of police practices. It's a, it's, it's a reflection of how police do their jobs and don't do their jobs. Decisions made in the field about where to go, what to report, what not to report. You can't understand what crime stats mean unless you understand police practice. There was just that study that came out, I think, yesterday or two days ago from Stanford University. 100 million police reports were analyzed of traffic stops and found evidence of bias. You know, not a surprise. We know this driving while black. And so the reports, the data, if you will, demonstrate basically that there's this bias. It doesn't get at the context in which it's actually done. So if we wanted to combine the two, we might, if it would be great as a hypothetical study to combine those 100 million uh, records with body cam image or dash cam images that get us to the actual interactions. Because now you can get the 
big quantitative data with this context about what it looks like in the field. And for me, when I, you know, in my consultancy ethnoanalytics, it's really talking about bringing the two together, not one or the other, but both. Yes, and in you know design thinking terms, yeah. and you know getting at the the really lived experience of the work to understand what the data represents. So you mentioned um, measuring the interactions themselves. Uh, I'm going to refer back to Forrester's definition of customer experience, which is uh, how customers perceive their interactions with an organization. Right. And uh, as you had explained to me earlier, uh, most of the measurement of that is measuring the customer's perceptions, right. not the actual interactions. And you're very active in measuring the interactions themselves. Why do you do that? I would say studying the interactions or analyzing the interactions because measurement can follow us back into this quantitative notion, uh -huh. which I could do. I mean, I, we talked yep. earlier about I could do content analysis versus conversation analysis or narrative analysis. There's a lot of tools in my qualitative data analytic toolbox that I can employ. But, you know, a lot of organizations, going back to the CX element, the customer experience element, they focus on perception. So NPS score or CSAT or customer effort or whatever measure you want to think about. And I, I don't say that's not without validity, although for a lot of reasons it's, not, it's, it's without, without validity, but I'm not saying that right now. I am saying is that looking at the interaction has a lot of importance as well. And by looking at the interactions, we can see what is actually going on in the encounter. I know people that shall remain nameless who think the, uh, the study of the interaction doesn't matter because it's perception that drives behavior. And I understand W.I. Thomas's theorem, if people perceive things as real, they'll be real in their consequences. Mm -hmm. Yes, I get it. However, there are these things that are actually happening that we should study as well because they inform us about the nature of that perception and the emergence yep. of those relationships and of those dynamics. I don't feel like it's an either or. We, we yeah, often tell so clients, um, your customer's subjective reality is our objective reality. You right. know, they, we operate by a couple of rules. They're not doing it wrong right. and we can't make them. Um, but the, the interactions they have are what they're forming uh, perceptions about. And if you change the underlying interactions, the perceptions are going to change. And you know, it's, it, there is something to it as well that you could have a seemingly unproblematic interaction and have somebody come away with it with some radically different perception of what happened. That's where we, you know, if we had the actual interaction itself, we might look at it and say, you know, was there an element of bias? Was there an element of prejudice? You know, traffic. I, I'm, right now in my town I live in, um, I'm doing the Citizens Police Academy because I'm interested in police work because I teach a class in criminal mm. justice. I do work around police interrogation, so I'm interested. And so we talked about use of force, okay? Yeah. And one of the pieces of use of force for police is risk perception. Yeah. So do police perceive risk differently if it's a white suspect or a black suspect, if it's a wealthy suspect versus a poor suspect, if it's an old suspect versus a young suspect, male or female, night, by themselves patrolling versus patrolling with other people. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of contextual factors, going back to context, that inform that perception of risk. That's why police often like to have body cam footage so that we can actually look at what took place, or citizens are recording footage so we can see what took place. So you have the perception of what happened in the report and in the account that was described later, but then you can actually go back and look at what actually took place. Yeah. and see what, you know, what was driving that perception, that description, that account that was produced as, as an after part of the actual interaction. So we, um, we're singing from the same hymnal here. Yeah. Uh, this is how we work. And sometimes the way we socialize uh, and, and demonstrate the evidence of this is um, 
It's a little bit challenging. Going back to the difference between qual and quant, mm -hmm. uh, you reminded me in a prior conversation um, that it's not that quantitative research is uh, more subjective or more easy to right. fudge, that all, all data is interpreted. All data is. I mean, I, my, my, actually, my PhD training, if I can remember back 25 years, which is hard at this age, was in quantitative data. Right, because I was doing mostly qualitative research, I wanted to know quantitative data as well. And at the end of any multiple regression factor analysis, discriminant analysis, I don't understand any of those. Words. I don't understand it either anymore. I just had to memorize it for my comprehensives, and I forgot it immediately <laughs> afterwards. Uh, so you interpret the result. So your R squared equals this, or your P equals your probability is that. You interpret what that result means. So mm -hmm. in quantitative research, there's the word interpret the results as the last step in it. How come then qualitative data is seen as being subjective and interpretive, where quantitative uses the word interpretation all the time? Yeah. And so all data is an element of approximation and abstraction. It just is a feature of it. I think, personally, and I think professionally, I can, I can argue this point, that observational work is far more concrete yeah. than uh, abstracting uh, psychological uh, perspective into some numeric format that then can be uh, aggregated with other, you know, abstractions into an average or something. The thing about numbers, though, uh, is that they appear more authoritative um, because they're so precise. Because they're so numeric. Yeah. The fact that numbers are numeric gives them their numerical, <laughs> you know, uh, by, you know, reliability. You know, when, when we're in the early stages of coming up with an idea, um, a business analyst might project that this is a, you know, $500 million idea. Right. Um, if, it's, if we're building something that nobody wants, um, the real number is closer to zero. Um, right. And so one of the things that I sometimes get frustrated with is that people confuse precision with accuracy. You know what I really, you remind me of something. I, re, I watch a lot of uh, Storage Wars. Mm -hmm. Okay. If anybody's ever watched Storage Wars before. But they come, you know, they, they buy all this stuff in these containers, right? And then they're like, oh, I can get 10 bucks for that. I can get 20 bucks for that. And at the end they say, who has the most money? No, you don't have the most money. You have the most stuff, which you project to be the most money. Yeah. But right now, you just got a bunch of stuff in your truck that you bought. So you're actually down money. Talk to me after <laughs> you sell that crap at your store and then show me what you actually made. But, you know, it, it constructs the notion that these numbers are an accurate reflection of some concrete state. And they're not. They're, they're approximations. I would think when I study conversations, I have the actual recorded conversation in video or audio form. I'm not abstracting that it's there, there it is. Yeah. And we can talk about it using conversation analysis and analyze the terms of talk and the interaction and go through those, that, that, those steps. There's no abstraction there. So it, you're, a, you're a, conversation, a conversational analyst. Conversation analyst. Conversation analyst, analyst in yeah. addition to being a professional noticer. Yeah. Um, that should make me feel self-conscious, it, it actually doesn't. How am I doing? I mean, you're doing competent for the context of doing a podcast right now. When we were talking together, just informally, it was a little uncomfortable. Okay. No, um, kind of joking. So um, talk to me a little bit about conversation analysis. And specifically, like, maybe there's a project you've worked on where you're, where you're doing that to help, right. um, help redesign a better customer experience or a better employee experience. Yes. A lot of this stems from my research I did as a PhD student in Detroit looking at interactions between Arab liquor store owners and their customers, most of whom are African-American. So I got very interested in what we called back then customer service encounters. Customer mm. experience didn't exist as a concept back then. 
and really looking at people form relationships in highly contentious environments or environments that are supposed to be contentious. Bulletproof glass and bulletproof like, glass. Um, you know, there's, this is after Rodney King verdict where mm-hmm. LA was burning. I think April 29th was the date because the Koreans have an expression for that date because a lot of Korean stores were, were destroyed in South Central Los Angeles, and you had these this discussion about immigrant store ownership and economic disadvantage in urban environments, and a lot of theories came out about, you know, uh, why these relationships exist. But guess what? None of these studies actually did go and look at the actual relationships. Mm-hmm. So I went into these liquor stores and I hung out, professional noticing. I recorded carrying an SVHS video deck into the stores back in the old days and having carrying a bunch of video cassettes and wiring in a microphone that I got from a place called The Spy Shop and analyzed 60 hours of videotape. And one thing that stood out to me was not so many of the problems, but how they built relationship. Yeah. But when things, when problems happened, they were over really small events, 10 cents, 25 cents, um, something, you know, can I have a bag? Can I get a straw? Really small things that blew up into these massive in-group, out-group yeah. uh, battles. So I became really interested in how people develop relationships in environments, in workplace environments. Today, I'm using a similar approach around in a call center for a client that shall remain nameless, looking at uh, how their, their call center staff at various levels of technological knowledge engage with their customers around this product, which is highly technical, and help to build relationships as well as solve problems. And Those do all it, sound like noble goals. I think so, but I think that the noblest goal is that you're trying to help workers actually leverage their expertise and their know-how and become more self-actualized in almost a Maslow sense in their work. But that's not usually the, the measure that's given to them, right? Mm, no, There's the measure that's usually given to them is how many calls duration, have you yeah. handled in an hour? Yeah. And you know, how long was your bathroom break? And there might be some standardized measure of how many times did you say the customer's name? Or did you end the conversation with a question? Or did you restate, did you repeat what the customer said? Well, if, you're, if I say something to you and you repeat it back to me verbatim, are you listening enough to understand? Or are you listening enough to, to regurgitate? And this is no different than my students taking notes. If they write down everything I say verbatim, that doesn't tell me they understand it. It just tells yeah. me they listened enough to regurgitate it. And depending on variations in the in the context, in the rest of the conversation, the parts that are measured or necessarily then scripted can sound really wrong. We actually went through a design exercise with the uh, the employees of this place where we said, let's pretend we're going to design the most inhuman <laughs> measurement system possible. And what would, the, what, would, what would the features be? And they listed out the features of standardized interactions, uh, no spontaneous emotion, forced empathy, um, you know, repeating what people said. We went through this whole list that pretty darn near, you know, mirrored what they already did, mm-hmm. <laughs> as a way of removing any humanness yeah. from the interactions. And so, when we were talking about this conversation analysis or customer experience program that I'm designing, along with some others, they're like, "Oh, so you're trying to make people more human?" I'm like, "Yeah, we're trying to make them more human." And there's something about the workplace or this workplace culture that is removing humanness from the interactions. So how do we bring the human back is the idea. Well, what are humans for is one of the, what are people for is one of the questions that motivates me as we, a lot of the times we're working on uh, customer experience experience systems that have digital channels, which are mostly self-service. And the, the remaining things that are done by people 
um, are usually higher stakes as a result because you come to them after failing in a digital cell service channel. And does it, yeah, yes, yes, and does it become a different price point so that, you know, for a certain, you know, spend of wallet customer, you don't have to go through the digital if you don't want to. You mm -hmm. can call in and get the same person, the same name at the same time, no matter what, uh, versus do you not care about that? You just want to have the digital option, and then if it doesn't work, you can escalate to the 1-800 number. Yeah. What design opportunity and product opportunities are there for different levels of competency and different levels of experience? Some people want to email. Some people want to do self-service. Some people want to know if I call that Sally is going to answer that phone every single time because no one understands me quite like Sally does. Mm, that's a lot of calls. <laughs> Possibly could be a lot of calls and a lot of actual therapy. But if you're spending the money, you have a big you know, you know, portion of pocket of yeah. a certain customer, that's the experience they want. And if you want to remain competitive, mm -hmm. that's, what you, that's what you should be doing. So I think it's, to your point, it's thinking more creatively about how we um, leverage our 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 human knowledge base yeah. versus you know it's not just replacing but it's reallocating and leveraging and I, I think what that requires is uh, maybe a different set of assumptions about what right. things like call centers are are yeah. they are they a cost center um, and you're trying to operate them as efficiently as possible which is not a human value necessarily it's a tailorist kind of approach or is it a place where you want to leverage and, and get the most value out of those human qualities yeah it's a good question and, and, it, it, and that's where the, uh, an employee experience and customer experience is ultimately around organizational cultural change mm. you know it's not just about we want to have a better customer satisfaction experience or customer satisfaction rating or employee engagement it's a cultural shift what's important to us and why what's important yeah. to our customers and are we meeting it what organization are we trying to be? I told this one company, sure, you could be the DMV of your profession <laughs> if that's your goal. And you know what? People go to the DMV because they don't have a whole lot of other choices. Yeah. And Monopolies this, get to do stuff that other people don't. Yeah, and if you're, the, you're a big enough company, you can kind of set the standard. And you're probably not going to lose many customers because the cost of change is so great. They're, they're going to they're gonna suffer through you like a bad marriage because the cost of divorce is just too much. Mm -hmm. I'm not speaking from personal experience here. <laughs> But that's, that's the thing, right? Like, I really hate being married to you, but darn it, I just can't afford to leave it. I've run the numbers, and it's just too much of a hassle, so I'm just going to ride this out until yeah. one of us dies. That's not it's, – it's sustainable, I guess, but it's not very enjoyable. So you want yeah. a sustainable relationship or an enjoyable relationship? And I sure as heck wouldn't recommend my buddy marry your sister because if she's anything like you, I don't want my buddy anywhere near her. Yeah. So your recommendation score is going to go down as So well. it's Yeah, it's no accident that the, the industries that have the worst um, – scores in terms of customer experience or customer satisfaction are the ones that tend to be a little bit more monopolistic yeah. or where the switching costs are incredibly Huge. high. Like there's no, there's, it's very difficult to trial a, a different health insurance provider. For and let's example. forget about losing our external customers. What about losing our internal customers, our employees? So mm. you might not lose any market share because the cost of leaving is too much, but you're already losing how much money yeah. by attrition and turnover and loss of productivity and loss of um, co cooperation in the workplace because everyone, no one cares about each other and everyone's working yeah. against each other. So you're pointing out a connection that we see repeatedly. Oftentimes our clients approach us with a, to, to help them with a customer experience problem or to identify a new customer experience opportunity. And we can develop that vision, but it becomes very clear once we start to try to implement that vision that the stuff that we have to, to work with and redesign is actually the employee's huge. experience. Right? I mean, that's one of those things where you brought me in to do this, but your real problem is that. Yeah. In doing consulting work, how often does that happen? Where you told me this was your problem, 
but you really your problem is over here. And so this is one of the things that we had to have with, with this client was that, yeah, I know customer experience is really important here, but how you're really going to first address that is by focusing on your employee experience yeah. and your internal communication among your employee groups on these telephone mm-hmm. handoffs. They call them transfers. I, I said, don't call them transfers anymore. Call them handoffs. Call them something that's more collaborative. Yeah. You know, like a, like a quarterback handing off the ball to another mm-hmm. player still on the same team. The sense of I'm transferring this call is I'm done with it. Now it's your problem. Yeah. You know, transferring ownership of my house to you. I no longer possess it. Now you do. Sounds so like you know how to analyze what words mean in conversation. Some days, you know. <laughs> uh, so I think, you know, trying to get them to not be managers and facilitators. Yeah. And really what I try to get around employee experience is to think about building workplace communities. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's the goal. So your you know, managers are really, you know, community developers and things like that. So that's where we're trying to get them to kind of move. It's really causing a cultural shift, as you said, but yeah. that's if, if you're well-intentioned and you are doing things for the right reasons, not just the profit and loss statement, then you're going to be motivated by these things. And the profit, the profit will come, yep. but first you've got to do these things. So going back to what you said a second ago about um, you know, discovering that the thing that you brought, were brought in to address is not the real uh, problem yeah. that needs solving, um, that can be difficult for a client to hear. Mm. Uh, and it connects back to some of the stuff that we've been talking about before in terms of the credibility of data. Yeah. Um, People uh, will challenge the data that we bring if it constitutes bad news. <laughs> <laughs> bad news for whom, right? Which stakeholder? Yeah. So right. if they don't want to hear it, right. that's when they tell us you didn't talk to the right people or you didn't talk to enough people. That's so funny because what I tell my students is they're like, well, how much evidence do I need? I'm like, that depends on the claim you're making yeah. and who's going to piss off. So, <laughs> you know, that's a sliding scale, my friend, and I can't yeah. tell you. So you're absolutely right. And... This is where, you so know, having... We, the way we do that is by, by gating uh, kind of the checkpoints. That The first thing we get a client to agree to is that these are the people we want to talk to. And we develop a really rigorous screener. Right. So they sign off on that in advance of what we've heard them tell us. Right. Then we do a learning review at which we say, we don't know where this is going to take us in terms of the right strategy, but at least let's listen to people and, and what they have to tell us. Uh, right. And then we agree that that's the, that's the reality we're living in so that by the time we get to ideas that may be um, a bit of an uncomfortable leap for our clients, we've, we've paved the way so that they get it. Yeah, I um, love it. And what we did for this last client was we, uh, we listed how many pages of transcript those interviews generated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's another piece. Yeah. And how many hours of interview. They're like, wow, that's a lot. So rather than saying we interviewed 16 people, that generated, I, don't, I forgot, like, you know, 600 pages of transcript and, you know, 12 hours of interview. And they're like, wow. So, again, playing that, that numeric game to kind of help to build that credibility. I think your point is, is right on. That first, they're, they're signing off on what's necessary. But I also think that referencing industry standards of this kind of work, hmm. even like in a UX environment, there's a UX notion of interviewing five people, not yep. really any more than five. Yep. So, you know, I might, I might interview 1,600 people through a survey. I should survey 1,600 people. Does that mean it's representative of the attitudes in the United States? There's 350 million people. Yeah. But we do things like we, we stratify sample. We do things like we purposeful sample. And we, you know, we do all these other kinds of research method things that help to build the perception of reliability and validity and professionalism in the data research yeah. design. One of the things that we discover is that the standards of reliability are different in different contexts. Yeah. So 
we've worked with Boston College, we've worked with a bunch of universities, um, and learned quickly that we shouldn't call what we do research, because it means a very different thing to them. Yeah. That we're looking for a starting point for generative insights and inspiration, as opposed to anything that's, you know, repeatable in terms of like a experiment method. Well, you know, you bring me along sometime, and mm-hmm. I'm happy to be the PhD guy in the room who will argue with them that it is, in fact, research, because psychology is having such a, a verification crisis right now about anything that they're doing that's throwing the whole thing into disarray around whether the past experiments actually have any validity today. Setting that aside for a second. <laughs> for a while. Yeah, that's a, yeah that, 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 that triggered me, which reminds me of this idea of reliability and validity. So in terms of triggering, I've been doing a lot of shooting of uh-huh. air guns. Okay. All right. Not today. Not to, well, no, not to, not yet today. <laughs> not here. See how this goes. Uh, but one of the things we do is we talk about sighting in a scope. Yep. Okay. And so, you know, a, a scope, a gun. You might be firing a gun from a stand, and it's clustering in a certain area of the target. Mm-hmm. It's not the bullseye, but it's clustering together, which means the gun is fly, firing reliably. Yeah. It's clustering in one area. There's a grouping, we would say, but it's not valid in that it's not getting to the right. bullseye. You could have, you know, a valid that it's kind of loosely grouping into a certain area, but it's not reliable in that it's not a tight cluster. Right. And so what you want to have is both reliability and validity in terms of a tight cluster where you're aiming. And so in research, in qualitative research and in quantitative research, we'll cite in, we'll prototype, we'll do preliminary research, preliminary questioning, we'll pilot test surveys or interview questions or things like that to kind of cite in our reliability and validity. And the notions of reliability and validity are different in qualitative versus quantitative. And that's a longer conversation. I have PowerPoint slides on that, of course. (laughs) Uh, What I'm happy to share with people. But it is is a different notion. Not that you can't talk about it, but you just talk about it differently. But the client needs to know that you're still paying attention to it and that it's an important feature. That it's not just your opinion of what you think you're finding, but you can point to actual data to show that this is actionable information because it's developed from context. Anything else you'd like to add? Um, yeah, this call has been recorded for quality purposes. Yeah, and it will be, it will be evaluated based on a standardized framework that was developed from some out-of-context, out-of-the-box program, which has nothing to do with your work environment. We're still going to use it anyway because we can measure it. Thanks, Gary. No problem. Thanks a lot, Toby. Appreciate it. The Resonance Test Podcast is where we seek out people who are consistently able to go from inspiration and cool ideas to fully implementing them. Innovation in this form can be found in all sorts of fields, from health and tech to food and music, and we love hearing how different people go about doing this repeatedly. EPOM Continuum is a global innovation design firm with studios in Boston, Milan, and Shanghai. At EPOM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. From our perspective, it's not really innovative until it exists. If you want to learn more about EPOM Continuum and the work we do, go to continuuminnovation.com. Thanks to Gary David and Toby Bator for their intriguing conversation. Many thanks to Kit Palalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Unending appreciation to Ken Gordon, our producer, for his masterminding behind the scenes. This has been The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Jen Ashman, and to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. <laughs>